Today is What Does This Mean Wednesday has a pastor's conference paper from this past March, March 7th, 2017 to be exact. And the funny thing about pastor's conferences, we get together, uh, there's a worship service, we take care of, you know, there's some business that we have to discuss, um, some questions of casuistry, which is just questions that have, you know, multiple different biblical principles in view. And then two or three papers are presented. And the presenter typically doesn't get to choose what he is writing about, but it's assigned to him and he has a year, maybe a year and a half to write a decent paper, which means that <laughs> realistically, um, a lot of times that paper is written in the last month or so, month and a half maybe, before pastor's conference, although there's a lot of research that goes beforehand. Um, for the March conference, I had been assigned a paper entitled the influence of monasticism on the theology of Martin Luther. And if you thought that sounded a little bit obscure, um, you wouldn't be the first person to have thought so. But having gone through the process of writing about Martin Luther and doing a little bit of research into his background and um, finding a few very good resources, I think that in the paper we discovered a number of very good parallels between the life of Martin Luther and our Lutheran theology today. And the point of those parallels isn't to say that the monasticism of Martin Luther, or his time as a friar or a monk, talk about that in the paper too. Um, the point isn't to say that his time as a monk is what influenced our Lutheran theology, rather the other direction. Our Lutheran biblical theology is evident in the life of Martin Luther, just as it is evident in your life and mine. So here goes. Monasticism's influence on Martin Luther. Preface. How did his time as a monk influence Dr. Martin Luther's theology? In what way did the monastery influence Luther's thinking, his core beliefs, his emotional makeup, his health. When I began considering this topic, I thought that the thunderstorm was the derailing moment. That thunderstorm on his way back to the monastery, where he cried out, St. Anne, save me, and if you save me, I'll become a monk. And he survived and then became a monk. And the legend always is that, you know, maybe that is when Luther finally decided to become a monk. And so when I began considering this topic, I thought that the thunderstorm was the derailing moment. The monastery was the ensuing wreckage of a man whose conscience never knew peace. In that sense, was the monastery the place where the Reformation was kindled? Was the monastery that launched Luther into the ceaseless attempts at atoning for his sin so that he would eventually despair of trying to do so? The question really gets to the overlap of our Lutheran history, Lutheran theology, and everyday life. But then again, don't they always overlap? On the one hand, we cannot neglect the context, the history, and the pre-Reformation life of Luther. In a sense, Luther's early life influenced the particular teachings which we still emphasize today. That is to say... God breathed life into this Reformation at a particular time and place, using people with their own particular histories and backgrounds. 
from a human perspective, Luther's monasticism definitely influenced his theology. On the other hand, we ought to be careful about the way we describe or emphasize his experience, his turmoil, his distress, and the subsequent gospel freedom. We Lutherans don't put much stock in conversion experiences. After all, who of us remembers our baptisms? But there is a risk of portraying Luther's life and monasticism as a time of such emotional turmoil that we present a conversion experience by proxy. Although I did not feel the burning in my bosom, the man whose name is the Allen Wells certainly must have. Yes, God used this man, clay jar though he was, to help restore the gospel to its rightful place within the church. Yes, his unique history, monasticism and all, was turned into an overwhelming blessing for the man and his fellow believers. But is his history, his experience of the cross, really that much different from Moses, Paul, Mary, or you and me? They who remembered sin long after the fact, such as in Paul's first letter to Timothy, apparently written around the year 65 AD, roughly 30 30 years after Paul's conversion and not long before his own death, Paul writes, Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. 1 Timothy 1 verse 13. In Paul's case, he points to his previous actions as evidence of God's tremendous grace. It is apparent that he also suffered some particular thorn in his flesh, which drove him to the Lord in prayer. Footnote number three. While Paul is thankfully vague about the exact nature of his thorn, my impression is that the thorn brought both physical and spiritual torment. The thorn is in his flesh, and the Lord's reply was that his grace would be sufficient for Paul. The wonderful vagueness of Paul's thorn leaves the topic open to pastoral application for both spiritual and physical maladies. We even recall the sinful woman about whom Christ himself said, Her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. The woman's sin may have been more public, but no more damning, than the sin of any other person at the banquet that day. Yet having been brought low by her guilt, she cannot help but pour out her love for Christ when she recognized her forgiveness. Believers of every age experience the cross as a necessary consequence of following Christ. Yes, Martin Luther's own experience of that cross was exacerbated by false doctrine. The heterodox teaching of his day amounted to spiritual abuse. Footnote number four. The term spiritual abuse comes from a book that was rescued from the burn pile at a Wisconsin Lutheran seminary book auction. It is defined thus. Spiritual abuse is a real phenomenon that actually happens among churches. It is a subtle trap in which the ones who perpetrate spiritual abuse on others are just as trapped in their unhealthy beliefs and actions as they whom they knowingly or unknowingly abuse. The heterodox teachings of Martin Luther's day amounted to spiritual abuse. The spiritual truths active in Luther's life are active among us as well. If we were to disregard the historical influence of Luther's false doctrine upon his consequent despair, we would end up dismissing our own theology. And likewise, 
dismiss any application from history to our lives today. The focus of our paper is an attempt to stay in the center. We will see that Martin Luther's time in the monastery was not the disease, per se, but rather a guilt-driven attempt to find relief in a wrong prescription. Secondly, we will see that Luther's painful personal history influenced his theology and ours in a very positive way. And finally, the lessons of history, particularly the spiritual realities behind that history, remain instructive for Christian life and congregational practice today. I am indebted to Roland Bainton for his tremendous theological biography of Martin Luther, and I will have attempted to also draw from Luther's own lectures, comments, and writings. I conclude with a final lament that my lack of scholarship may well result in a patchwork of Luther quotations held together by threads of historical context. Now that the bar has been sufficiently lowered, we begin. Part 1. Luther, the Monk I was putting my Holy Communion set away, packing my Bible, and finding my keys. Sins confessed, absolution pronounced, miniature church service with Holy Communion completed. But her fragile heart had known tremendous spiritual abuse from her Roman Catholic upbringing. Yes, she knew that praying the Lord's Prayer was not meritorious, but we are emotional creatures, and she found great comfort in it. Pastor, could we pray the Our Father once more? And this, after having been a Lutheran for over half of her seventy-odd years. Footnote number five. Oh, that I would find the same regular comfort in the Lord's Prayer. Luther was at times severely depressed, and the reason lay not in any personal frictions, but in the malaise of existence intensified by religion. Certain elements of old German paganism were blended with Christian mythology and the belief of these untutored folk. For them, the woods and the winds and the water were peopled by elves, gnomes, fairies, mermen and mermaids, sprites and witches. The education in the school reinforced the training of the home. The studies at Erfurt all impinged on theology. The entire training of home, school, and university was designed to instill fear of God and reverence for the church. That is from Roland Bainton's tremendous biography entitled, Here I Stand. With these words, Bainton asserts that the culture and the church ingrained a guilt-ridden, superstitious theology into the German people. For Martin, the monastery was not the beginning of his spiritual turmoil. Although the monastery was the place where Luther's theology crushed him, the monastery was simply the most logical solution to the problems of medieval religion. Upon taking his vow, Luther confidently gave himself over to the life which the church regarded as the surest way of salvation. There at the monastery, especially at the Black Cloister, the home of the observant Augustinians, the monk could devote his entire life to attaining serious spiritual benefit for themselves and others. Kittleson suggests that Luther had already been considering the monastery in early to mid-1505, 
after receiving his Master of Arts in January of 1505 en route to becoming a lawyer, and that his walk home from the university at Erfurt may have been undertaken in order to talk with his father about changing occupations from lawyer to monk. No doubt, Hans would have dismissed the thought of monastic life. Master Martin was to bring the Luder family some security in Hans's old age. But the walk back from home to school brought the thunderstorm, during which Luther made his vow to St. Anne and interpreted that strike of lightning as a sign from God. When Martin wrote to his father describing the thunderstorm experience, Hans replied that he wondered whether his son had misinterpreted the omen. Martin Luther entered the Augustinian cloister at Erfurt on July 17, 1505, barely two weeks after the thunderstorm and vow. For Martin, the monastery was not the beginning of his discontent, but it was the obvious natural solution for a religious man from a superstitious people. Every minute was closely regulated. The first of six worship services began at 2 a.m. Bainton describes the practices of the Augustinians. Luther's days as a novice were occupied with those religious exercises designed to suffuse the soul with peace. At the first summons, between 1 and 2 a.m., they sprang up, made the sign of the cross, and pulled on the white robe and the scapular, without which the brother was never to leave his cell. At the second bell, each came reverently to the church, sprinkled himself with holy water, and knelt before the high altar with a prayer of devotion to the Savior of the world. Then all took their places in the choir. Matins lasted three quarters of an hour. Each of the seven periods of the day ended with a chanting by the cantor of the Salve Regina, a song of prayer to Mary, asking for her advocacy on their behalf. Luther's own comments about that first year, and about monasticism in general, were mentioned both in the Bainton and Kittleson biographies, quoting from Luther's 157-page evisceration of monasticism, that writing entitled, The Judgment of Martin Luther on Monastic Vows. When based on divine resources, he wrote, There is no such thing as a year of probation, for the whole life is the year of probation. I myself, along with many others, have experienced how peaceful and quiet Satan was wont to be in the first year of becoming a priest and a monk. All the evidence supports Luther's view of himself as a zealous and successful monk. I almost fasted myself to death, for again and again I went for three days without taking a drop of water or a morsel of food. I was very serious about it. I really crucified the Lord Christ. The most pious monk is the worst scoundrel. Later in life, Luther would point to his own monastic zeal and the bodily torture as the cause of many health problems. Barely a year after his entry into the monastery, Luther celebrated his first Mass as a priest. He had quickly passed the rigorous testing, that is, the year of probation, required for a novice friar, and had surpassed that enough to be ordained into the priesthood. The priesthood was held up as the final ideal 
the place where the most spiritual good could be accomplished after all else had been done as a monk. If anyone would be able to quiet his conscience and provide good works for others, he was a monk. Surely the priest, with his celebration of the Mass, could do even more. Officiating at the Mass was always an ordeal, because the Mass is the focal point of the Roman Catholic means of grace. The priest is entrusted with the responsibility, the power, the privilege denied to angels and kings, namely, to transform the elements and to carry out this good work as something meritorious for salvation, effective simply by having been carried out or having been carried out well. That when the priest stands up there and pronounces, This is my body, the bread miraculously changes into the body of Christ, leaving no morsel of bread remaining, and likewise the wine. And the priest presents this to God in their theology as an unbloody sacrifice to, to put more merits into the treasury of merits that the church could then distribute. And naturally, we speak of Luther's priesthood and Holy Communion as Luther then understood it. In his visit to Rome, Luther would see babbling priests hasten through the Mass he and his fellow Germans seem to have been far more concerned with doing it well, beyond simply the Italian babbling the words and enacting the motions. The vestments needed to be perfect. The confession beforehand needed to be absolutely complete. His first celebration of the Mass was postponed so that Martin's father Hans could make it. Proceeding into the consecration and the Eucharistic prayer, which is the central um, focal point of the whole Mass, Nervous Martin nearly lost his voice, almost dropped the host, the bread, um, almost dropped the cup, and was this close to running away from the altar at the stupefied, terror-stricken thought of addressing a holy God. Footnote number 13. May we who know the truth and reality of Holy Communion never fall into mindless familiarity with this sacrament. But Martin made it through. His father had come to his first Mass as monk and priest and had brought the expensive donation of twenty gold gulden for the black cloister. At the banquet which followed, the first time Martin had seen his father since their pre-thunderstorm conversation nearly two years previously, Martin drew comfort at the thought of accomplishing such meritorious works for his father and mother, that is, accomplishing the works that would finally atone for their sins in this life. The exact wording of the exchange is not certain, but it went something like this. Dear Father, why were you so contrary to my becoming a monk? Isn't this better for you than my becoming a lawyer? But perhaps you are not quite satisfied even now. This life is so quiet and godly. Hans retorts, You learned scholar, have you not heard the commandment to honor your father and mother? And here, you have left me and your dear mother to look after ourselves in our old age. But Father, I could do you more good by prayers than if I had stayed in the world. Remember the thunderstorm? That is certain proof from God that he wanted me here. God grant that it was not an apparition of the devil.
Martin thought he had found the solution to finally quiet his conscience, the place and the work by which he could be relieved of his terror and guilt. His father's comment threw him into despair. Could the priesthood really be right? When his own father spoke of Martin's broken obligation to God and parents in the fourth commandment, could his entering the monastery be God's will, when the sign may have been a delusion sent by Satan? These questions and doubts were prompted by a single question which surpassed all others. How could a man dwell in the presence of holy God unless man himself were holy? The cloister represented the quest for holiness, the higher form of righteousness which mere lay people could not attain. Whether, bri- whether prompted by God or Satan, Martin was a monk. He resolved to monk to the max. Footnote 15. Technically, he was a friar. Monks and nuns made their vows, and they committed to a particular community in a specific place. Friars seek to live out the evangelical counsels of poverty, chastity, and obedience in service to society. So monks work and do all their praying and singing within the monastery walls, and friars are out and about in the community, in the country, in the city. Um, Perhaps the most famous of them, Friar Tuck, from Disney's rendition of um, Robin Hood. Friar Tuck, who is always there, kind of in the background, and hanging out with Robin Hood as he experiences and sees all that the people are going through. The monastic efforts of charity, sobriety, and love were made more drastic in prayer, fasting, masses and confessions, penance, obedience, and vigils. In all these efforts, Luther surpassed his contemporaries. At times, proud of his sanctity, Luther might think, I've done nothing wrong today. But then misgivings would arise. Have you fasted enough? Are you poor enough? Then, casting off everything allotted to him except what decency required, Luther relates, I was a good monk, and I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. All my brothers in the monastery who knew me will bear this out. If I had kept on it any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils and prayers, reading and other work. Luther visited Rome in 1510, seeking out the merits of the saints, while astonished at the incompetence, the ignorance, the frivolity, and levity of the Italian priests. While at home, while at Rome, he resolved to release his grandpa Heine from purgatory, climbing Pilate's stairs on hands and knees, repeating his paternosters and kissing each step. Luther regretted that his parents were not yet dead, that he should confer upon them so great a favor. At the top, Brother Martin stood and wondered, well, who knows whether it is so. The levity and lechery didn't matter if the church had a valid means of grace. This is the central point of the entire paper. And this cannot be overstated. The Roman Catholic, footnote number 17, the Roman Catholic means of grace is really our own actions of penance and obedience. 
such grace is not really grace, and who knows when my works would ever be enough. Therein lies the monster of uncertainty. Lifestyle doesn't matter at all if you can work off your own sin through your acts of contrition. You could be as drunk a priest as you want to be as long as you go and babble through your Hail Marys and your Our Fathers. Luther visited Rome. But if crawling up the very stairs where Christ had stood, repeating the prescribed prayers wouldn't do it, then where would Martin find certainty and quietness of conscience to say nothing of positive fruit, such as joy or hope or love? The Augustinians and Franciscans were asked to supply three professors for the new University of Wittenberg. In early April 1511, one of them was Luther, assigned there by the vicar of the Augustinians, Johann von Staupitz. During his time in Wittenberg, Luther learned that even six hours of confessing would not serve to enumerate his many sins. We have two footnotes here, numbers 18 and 19. Number 18. Who of us has used the right of confession and absolution for ourselves? Six hours of confession, never knowing absolution. The guilty conscience never knows peace in its own works. And footnote number 19. I recently interviewed Pastor Nate Silo, Kearney, Nebraska, for our church's What Does This Mean Wednesday edition of our podcast. We talked about confession and absolution for nearly an hour, and my congregation will be setting aside two hours on the Saturday before Holy Week as time available for private confession and absolution. Where Pastor Silo serves... Every pastor's conference has a time for private confession and absolution. Perhaps such a practice would yield as much fruit or more as our own efforts at higher-level leadership training. And it would accomplish this by addressing the spiritual needs of our pastors and dealing with sin before those sins blow up in resignations or suspensions. This young man, Martin Luther, on the verge of nervous collapse after confessing six hours and not even not even feeling forgiven. He confessed for six hours, he walked out, didn't even get ten steps away, turned around, went back in to keep on confessing. This young man would be commissioned as Doctor of Theology on October 19, 1512. The workload and the study time When would brother, father, doctor, Martin have time for the innumerable innumerable prayers and hours of confession? Staupitz intended for Luther to occupy his position as chair of the Bible at the university, and this position, chair of the Bible, would direct Luther's eyes away from his monkery to the study of Scripture. Lectures on the Psalms began in August 1513, fall of 1515, Romans, and Galatians, 1516 and 17. Through these studies, the terror of the thunderstorm and the terror of the mass, especially the contemplation, the conundrum, and the absolute impossibility of approaching a holy God without adequate confession, and whose confession was really adequate, all of this was met with the word of God. 
It is no coincidence that the indulgences of Tetzel were met with the 95 Theses in October of 1517. Luther had wrestled with the suffering of Christ prefigured in the Psalms, the justice of God in Romans, the vanity of self-directed works in Galatians, and through that study, the Holy Spirit led Dr. Luther to recognize, number one, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Number two, this word cannot be understood as referring to the sacrament of penance, that is, confession and satisfaction, as administered by the clergy. Number three, yet it does not mean solely inner repentance. Such inner repentance is worthless unless it produces various outward mortification of the flesh. And thesis number four, the penalty of sin remains as long as the hatred of self, that is, true inner repentance, namely until our entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Of course, Luther wasn't quite a Lutheran immediately at the castle church door than when he posted the 95 Theses. The Heidelberg Disputation of six months later, 26 April 1518, is much closer to Lutheranism than the Theses are. Number one, the law of God, the most salutary doctrine of life, cannot advance man on his way to righteousness, but rather hinders him. Number two, much less can human works which are done over and over again with the aid of natural precepts, so to speak, lead to that end. Number three, although the works of man always seem attractive and good, they are nevertheless likely to be mortal sins. Number four, although the works of God are always unattractive and appear evil, they are nevertheless really eternal merits. Skipping ahead to number 13. Free will after the fall exists in name only, and as long as it does what it is able to do, it commits a mortal sin. Number 16. The person who believes that he can obtain grace by doing what is in him adds sin to sin so that he becomes doubly guilty. Number 21. A theology of glory calls evil good and good evil. A theology of the cross calls the thing what it actually is. Number 25. He is not righteous who does much, but he who, without work, believes much in Christ. Number 26. The law says, do this, and it is never done. Grace says, believe in this, and everything is already done. Number 27. Actually, one should call the work of Christ as an acting work, and our work as an accomplished work, and thus an accomplished work pleasing to God by the grace of the acting work, which is to say, our good works are pleasing to God on account of the completed good work of Christ and his work in us through his gospel. Luther was garbed as a monk for 19 years, retaining it for three years after his excommunication. He says, In the year 1523, I finally laid aside my habit 
to the glory of God and the confusion of Satan, and many approved of my act for the sake of liberty. If I had not myself taken off my cowl, eaten meat on fast days, and taken a wife, all the papists would have protested that my teaching isn't true. As Luther would put it later, I didn't learn my theology all at once. I had to ponder it over again and again ever more deeply, and my spiritual trials were of help to me in this, for one does not learn anything without practice. This is what the spiritualists and the sectarians lack. This concludes part one of three in our look at the life of Luther as a monk and his influence as a monk on his theology. Be sure to tune in next week for part two when we step out of the history a little bit more into modern and practical applications. What exactly did his life as a monk entail, and how did his life as a monk influence his theology and the particular teachings that he emphasizes? God bless your day. Jerusalem, the Thanks for listening to Green Pastures with Jesus, the audio home of Shepherd of the Lakes Lutheran Church of Fairmont, Minnesota. If you like what you just heard, we hope you'll pass along our website, www.shepherdofthelakes.net. Pass that along to your friends and colleagues. Be sure to check out our archives section at our website for previous podcasts. You can find us 9.30 a.m. Sunday mornings at 323 East 1st Street in Fairmont, just up the hill from Richard's Towing. Any questions, contact me, Pastor Hagen, 507-236-9572. God bless your day. God bless beyond compare.